so well known to many of us, John 3, 16. Tell you what, we'll just read it together. I don't know what translation you have. You might have King James. You might have New King James, NIV. I've got the ESV. Whatever your translation is, let's just read it all together and give God the glory. Are you ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, over 120 years ago, there was a shabbily dressed hobo trudging down the streets of Chicago. It was a snowy, cold winter morning. The man was headed for his favorite tavern, but his eye was drawn to a sign that was hung above the entrance of the church where D.L. Moody was preaching. Now today, the historic Moody Church. The man saw the sign and he decided to go in just to really get a break from the cold. And so he meandered in and he quietly sat on the back pew. When Moody began preaching on this text, John three sixteen, the man started to weep like a baby. He stayed long after the service and he just cried and cried and cried some more on the pew. Moody approached the man after everybody had left and he said, Sir, what is it that brings you here today? The man replied, It, it was the sign outside your church. You see, your sign says, God loves you. And I thought I'd come in to see if that was really true. There are many souls in the world who, like that drunken man, believe for one reason or another that God cannot love them. Perhaps they have suffered tragedies in life and it has convinced them that God doesn't care about them. Or maybe they think their sins are too great for God to love them. Their life is so messed up, their past so wretched. There's no way God... Could accept them. Or it could be that they grew up in a strict religious background believing that God only favors certain kinds of people and that kind of people isn't them. So there's no doubt as we read John 3.16 it has become the most well-known and oft-quoted Bible verse. It appears probably more than any other verse on bumper stickers and t-shirts and if you're a fan of college football like me, it seems like every time they're kicking a field goal or the extra point, there's somebody in the end zone holding up the sign, John 3.16. And praise God for that witness. But that one verse is so important because it's the gospel message in a nutshell. And it may be perhaps the most shocking statement about God's character. That one verse has done more to soften men's heart and introduce them to Jesus than any other because it is a timeless message that every heart longs to hear. That I am loved despite my failures and my fears, despite my doubts and my depravity, despite my past and my problems, that God loves me. Max Licato wrote a whole book on John 3, 16 and then that there's a paragraph that I want to quote for you. He says, John 3.16 is brief enough to write on a napkin or memorize in a moment, yet solid enough to weather 2,000 years of storms and questions. 
If you know nothing of the Bible, start here. If you know everything in the Bible, return here. The words are to Scripture what the Mississippi River is to America, an entryway into the heartland. This verse is an alphabet of grace, a table of contents to the Christian hope, a safety deposit box of gospel jewels. We expect an angry God who punishes the world and forsakes the world, yet we discover that God's love is qualitatively different from ours. When we wondered how much He loved us, Jesus stretched out His arms on a cross, died in our place, and said this much. So in today's message, we're going to try and break apart John 3.16, and there's five qualities of God's love that I want you to see here today in this greatest of all verses. First off, number one, I want you to notice this morning that God's love is extravagant. God's love is extravagant. And we see that in the very first part of the verse. For God so loved. The first aspect of God's love is that it is uncaused. It's unearned. It's undeserved. And friend, it is unconditional human love comes with all kinds of strings attached to it doesn't it the world says to us I love you if you are lovable I love you if you're good looking I'll love you if you're intelligent I'll love you if you're rich or famous or athletic or if you can scratch my back what can you do for me I'll love you if and then we put a condition after that But worldly love is ultimately self-serving. God's love is extravagant. For God so loved. There's no hidden ifs in the contract, are there? God's love is free. It's unprompted. It's not based on our accomplishments or our ancestry or our age or our achievements. Some of you need to hear that today. That God's love is extravagant toward you. There's nothing we can do today that will make God love us any more or any less than what He has already demonstrated on the cross of Jesus Christ. Even before you were knit together in your mother's womb, He loved you. But it goes even deeper than that. You see, God knows everything about us. All the good, the bad, the ugly, the sin, the shame the things in our past that we think make us unlovable, and He loves us in spite of those things. That's real love when somebody knows you warts and all, everything about you that you'd rather hide, and still chooses you. The great preacher of the Victorian era, Charles Spurgeon, told a great story about him taking a trip to a countryside to visit a friend who had built a new barn. And... Atop that barn was a weather vane that the man, the farmer, had attached. And in wrought iron, there it was written, God is love on top of that barn. Spurgeon asked his friend. He said, sir, what do you mean by putting that scripture on that weather vane? Do you mean that God's love is as changeable as the wind? The man replied, he said, oh no, preacher. I mean to say that God is love whichever way the wind blows and that truth should transform every heart because we live in a world where we base our self-worth on our net worth we feel approval or validation 
or even loved by how many likes or followers we may get on Twitter or Facebook or, or whatever social media we're on. We live and die by the labels that people place upon us. And yet our Creator, our Redeemer has already written over the script of our lives. I love you with an everlasting love. Some preachers need to hear that today because there's a lot of preachers who think their life is a failure because they haven't risen to the top of a mega church and they need to be reminded, God loves you, preacher. God loves you, deacon, Sunday school teacher. God loves you, sinner. All those external trappings, they should pale in comparison to what God thinks about us. If the Savior who died for you loves you, then you ought to rest in the security of that. And who cares what everybody else thinks of you or me if I'm divinely, sacrificially, totally, and unconditionally loved by God. There's God's love in creation. Friend, do you know that He made you to love you? There was love, God's love in the book of Genesis when He petitioned Noah to build that boat and then He invited everybody who would to get on that boat and escape the wrath that is to come. That's the love of God. The love of God was in Abraham's life when He singled him out out of all the sea of humanity to create from him a nation and bring a Redeemer into the world. There was God's love in, through His people in the Old Testament, uh, in the Passover lamb, and in manna, and in water from the rock. There was the love of God through the prophets as they spoke the Word of God and wrote the Word of God. Now today we benefit from as we read and as we preach from. Uh, there was love in David's life when he said, I want you to go down there and get Mephibosheth and invite the cripple to come dine at the, king, uh, the table's king. There was love when God called Jonah and said, I want you to go to those miserable, wicked people over there in Nineveh and tell them that I love them and tell them about my mercy and my grace. And then there was love personified when God took on a body and He walked through our streets uh, for 33 years in the person of Jesus Christ. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. Oh, there was love in every touch uh, that the Master gave out. Uh, he, there was love when He invited the, friend, the friends around Him, the tax collectors and the sinners. Uh, there was love in the story of the prodigal son. You see, that father, he never gave up on that son to come home. And when he arrived back, he ran and greeted him. And extravagantly, he said, let's put a robe around him. Get him a ring and new shoes. Go kill the fatted calf. For he who was lost has now returned. I'm talking to you about the extravagant love of God. He loved you when you were sick. And the doctors gave you a bad prognosis. And now today you're walking in power and in victory. He loved you when He answered that prayer. He loved you when you didn't have the resources to meet that need. And God made a way where there was no way. God loved you when you were hopeless and addicted and sin sick and broken and running from Him. And He met you and pursued you and sought you and bought you and brought you into His wonderful love. I'm telling you, my God's love is extravagant today. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. God 
so loved. And God's love is extravagant, but then also, look at this. God's love is expansive. Amen? God's love is expansive. We see it in that next phrase of this verse. God so loved, notice, the world. Remember the context of John 3.16. As we saw last week, it took place in the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And the Bible says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a ruler. He sat on the Supreme Court, if you will. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. And this part of Jesus' statement, I think, would have left his jaw hitting the floor. Because we would expect him to say something like, if you were Nicodemus, for God so loved the Jews, right? His chosen people, his, his covenant people. They had the Word of God and the temple of God. But Jesus says, no, God so loved the world. Jesus, you can't be serious. Maybe Nicodemus thought for a moment. You mean to tell me that God loves the Romans who have their oppressive boot upon us right now at this moment, Jesus? You mean to tell me God loves the wicked Babylonians who sacked our temple and deported our people? You mean to tell me that God loves the Muslims and God loves the racists and God loves the communists and God loves the sinners? That's what it says. The world. Romans 5.8 is a good counterpart to this. But God demonstrates His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Timothy 2.4, another related verse to this. There we read that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. You see, God's love includes all the folk that we think are unlovable. All the folk that we think are irredeemable. Hear me, church. God loves the junkie who can't stop putting a needle in his arm. God loves the death row inmate. God loves the idol worshiper who can't even say the name of Jesus but has a bone through his nose and he's lost in his pagan religion. God loves the greedy, swindling politician. That's hard to believe, isn't it? God loves the deadbeat dad. God loves the homosexual and the transgender who are so confused in their life. The people in that nation all the way across an ocean that we can't even really find on a map, God loves them too. Many of you know the name Tim Tebow. And he had a great career in football. He's become a household name because of his feats on the football field and his charity work. But many of you know that Tim played college ball at the University of Florida. And there in 2007, he won the Heisman Trophy, and he led the, the Gators to national championship. But from there, Tim went on to the NFL, and he played a few seasons with the Denver Broncos. Well, listen to what happened. During the 2012 NFL playoffs, Tim Tebow wrote John 3.16 across his eye black. I'm sure you saw the picture there. He thought it would be a way that he could be a Christian witness on the football field. Hey, I'll take John 3.16 over kneeling any day, won't you? Some of these folk need to realize that they're blessed beyond comparison just to be born in the United States. They've won the lottery already to have freedom and the ability to go make millions of dollars and then whine about how disenfranchised they are. That's my soapbox and I'm getting off of it today. But anyway, Tim Tebow wrote John 3.16 across his eye black. 
and all the crowd, they basically lost their mind. Right? You bring Jesus into the equation, that's when people's feathers get all ruffled up. But millions of people watched that game, that playoff game in 2012 between the Broncos and the Steelers, and the, the folks watching saw in John 3.16 across his face. Did you know that 90 million curious viewers logged on to Google during that game to look up John 3.16? And listen to this. This is incredible. For a day, John 3.16 was the most searched item on the Internet. Tim Tebow led the Broncos to a win, and the sports media then reported his stats. He had thrown for precisely 316 yards... He averaged 31.6 yards per completion, and the Broncos' time of possession was 31 minutes and 6 seconds. You tell me there's not a God in heaven. Hey, even God can get glory out of the NFL, amen? One commentator wrote this, We know the Lord moves in mysterious ways, and some think that finding a significance in the QB stats borders on superstition, but it may also show us that God will have his way to use almost any means to tell us how deeply he loves a lost world. Even the words John 3.16 scribbled across the sweaty face of a football player. God can use it. God's love is expansive. God's love is extravagant. Then notice this, number three, God's love is expensive. That he gave his only begotten son. I'm a parent of three. Many of you are parents today. And I could not imagine offering one of my children to die for strangers. To die for people who would cuss them and spit on them and treat them like trash. And yet, God did that. Sometimes we might think, oh, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a loving person. And we may even admire the compassion of a good Samaritan. But none of that comes anywhere close to the immense love that costs God the brutal death of his sinless son. You think about this. Creation costs God nothing. What did it cost God in Genesis 1-1 to step out on the balcony of nothing and create everything that there is and was? Just a few words, didn't it? And yet, redemption, what did it cost him? It cost God everything. And yet, God created knowing that he would have to redeem it all. Now, the Greek word that we read there in our text, only begotten, is an interesting word. It's the word monogonés. It means one of a kind. In other words, when God gave his son, he gave the best. He gave the most unique. He gave the most costly gift possible. Listen to what Paul wrote in a parallel verse, Romans 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, God says, look, he already gave you the best, the most expensive, the most lavish, the most precious gift in his son, in his son and that can't be topped, so he will throw in everything else to the child of God on top of that. My, my, if our salvation could have been achieved by any other means than the death of God's precious Son, don't you think that God in His infinite power and His great wisdom would have opted for another route? But friend, there was no other way. 
That's why you can't be good enough. Church attendance isn't good enough. Giving enough money isn't good enough. Uh, having a great heritage and a great family isn't good enough. Good enough isn't good enough. It took the death of God's only Son to make us acceptable and right before a thrice holy God. Our military folks have some inkling of this cost. Listen to this. On July the 1st, 2007, Army Staff Sergeant Travis Akins was running a roadside security checkpoint with a squad of three soldiers in Iraq. One vehicle that Sergeant Aiken stopped was carrying Iraqi fighters who were armed to the teeth. One of which was a suicide bomber wearing a vest loaded with explosives. In the heat of the moment, Sergeant Aikens had to make the ultimate sacrifice to save his men as he noticed that vest of explosives was about to be detonated. So he wrestled the suicide bomber to the ground fell on top of him and used his body as a shield to save his other three men. Aikens died immediately. In 2019, Sergeant Aikens was posthumously awarded the military's highest honor, the Medal of Honor. It was given by President Trump in an emotional ceremony, and the citation was accepted by his son, Travis Aikens' son, Oliver. Here's what he said. He said, there's nothing that we could say or do that could make up for what my dad did. Because of his sacrifice, three men get to live and have families. There is no greater gift. Greater love has no man than he lay down his life for his friends. And yet, likewise, Jesus, he took the full blast of sin, death, and God's wrath on the cross aren't you thankful today that our God doesn't say to us prove to you how much you love me by strapping a bomb to your chest and running to a crowd but God said I'll show you how much I love you I strapped a cross to my back and I went up the hill of Calvary took three nails the best blow that the devil could give but he didn't stay dead and he won't stay gone because he got out in power and in victory today Travis Aikens gave his life for his friends. And he's a hero and should be lauded and commended. But that doesn't even come close to what Jesus did for you and me. That breaks down as an analogy because the Bible says Christ gave his life for his enemies, for the ungodly, for the wicked, for the idolater, for the one who's running from him. You see, the highest act of love is giving the best gift at the greatest cost to the least deserving. And that's what Jesus did. God's love is expensive. It's expansive. It's extravagant. But then number four, I want you to see this. God's love is extended. It's extended. Notice the next phrase that we see, that whoever believes in Him. God's love spreads what we might call a big tent, doesn't it? And His love can accommodate everyone who wants to find shelter beneath it. I like what 1 John 2, 2 says. And He Himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours only, but for the whole world. Notice that everyone is invited to find refuge under the tent of God's love. There's a condition, isn't there? Believe. 
and receive. Now, notice here, let's be diligent in our theology to be accurate. The Bible doesn't teach that everyone is going to be saved. That's a lie called universalism. However, it does teach that everyone could be saved if they wanted to. These verses do not mean that everyone is actually saved by the sacrifice of Jesus, but it means that everyone could potentially be saved by the sacrifice of Jesus. You see, Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficient for only those who have believed and received his Son. Adrian Rogers said it like this, A man may go to hell unsaved, but he won't go to hell unloved or uninvited. What a great word. You could think of salvation in terms of a check. And I know we're growing in an increasingly cashless society. I'm old school. I, I still like to write checks. But you can think of salvation in terms of a check. When someone writes you a check, the money is yours as long as there's funds in the bank to cover it and as long as you take the time to turn it over and endorse it on the back. In other words... The money doesn't become yours until you appropriate the gift by signing your name. Well, when we turn to the Bible, what we see is that God's Son has written the world a check for the salvation of all sinners. The amount of the gift is unlimited. God has enough grace in the spiritual bank account to cover your sin and my sin and the sin of everybody who's ever offended a holy God. But the gift doesn't become yours. Until you repent and you trust and Jesus becomes your Savior. That's where faith comes in the picture. Notice what the verse says, that whosoever believes, that's faith. Notice this, as Stacy mentioned before our music, God doesn't ask you to get cleaned up before you come to Him. God doesn't ask for you to pray a certain way or belong to a certain church denomination. God doesn't tell you to pray to Virgin Mary. God doesn't tell you to go to a priest or go through the rosary. God doesn't tell you to be baptized first. God doesn't tell you to give X amount of dollars to your favorite charity or go through some kind of prescribed ritual where you have to stand on your head in just the right way or face a certain direction or pray how many times a day and stain from foot. God doesn't say any of that. He says just believe. The only requirement of faith, and I'm thankful today for the level ground at the cross. Because that means that if we can't walk there, we can crawl there. <laughs> and God will meet us in our need. We must abandon our good works, our pride, our sin, and repent and trust only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Believe. When I was about 13 years old, I got a real lesson in faith. My youth group at the time was uh, taking a trip. It was in the middle of the summer, nice, beautiful day. We were going up on the Blue Ridge Parkway to go to Graveyard Fields. Any of you ever been there? I used to go there with my mom and dad on occasion to pick blueberries, and I thought, I'd, oh, my gosh. Mom, can we please leave? <laughs> took forever to fill up that gallon jug full of blueberries. But anyway, we were going there with my youth group on that day and we were hiking around the beautiful waterfalls and all of that wonderful creation over there in graveyard fields and one of our youth leaders was a qualified paramedic he had done special rescue training and he brought with him that day his rappelling gear 
And he said, hey, boys, watch this. And he hooked up his repelling gear to one of the big falls. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about, about a 50-foot face. He hooked up all of his repelling gear, and he said, hey, boys, watch this. And he repelled down that face, that rock face, parallel to that waterfall. And, I mean, it was awesome. And we watched him, and this guy was also my Sunday school teacher at the time. He got down to the bottom, and he handed me the equipment. He said, now it's your turn. It was okay to watch you. I don't know about getting up there, but I didn't want to be a chicken. You challenge a 13-year-old boy, right? He's not going to be the chicken around his buddies. So I got up there, up at the top of the waterfall to make my way down, and they handed me that harness, and that thing looked like a diaper. And I thought, my goodness, I may need the diaper by the time all this is over with. But I strapped that thing around me, and I got to the edge of that cliff, and my knees started doing this, and I looked down, and I thought, I can't do this. <laughs> There's no way. And I looked down. The man's name was Ronnie. Ronnie looked back up at me. He said, just let go, Derek. Gravity will do the rest. I said, that's what I'm afraid of. I yelled back down to him. My knees are shaking. My hands are, my palms are sweaty. I yelled back down to him. I said, Ronnie, what do I do? He said these words. I'll never forget it. He said, trust me. He said, you're tied to me, and I can't let go. Amen. And that's something that I've carried all the way through my life. That's the confidence that we have in the promise of John 3, 16. By faith, I'm linked to Jesus Christ and His love will never let go. By faith, we're bound to Christ with mighty cords of love that cannot even be broken by the power of death. And in the end, it's not the strength of our faith, but it's the object of our faith. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and the enemy is not able to pluck a single one out of my hand. Friend, it's better to have weak faith in a big God than strong faith in a little God. And we got the biggest one of them all who conquered death, hell, and the grave. And if he said, you'll get to the other side, you shall not perish, just hold on. And when you feel like letting go, he'll hold on to you and see you to the other side. God's love is extended, it's expensive, it's expansive, it's extravagant. And then lastly today, God's love is eternal. God's love is eternal. Look what the last part of this verse says. Should not perish, but have eternal life. Praise God. Aren't you glad for the child of God? Listen to me. This is the closest to hell you and I will ever get. Somebody say amen in the house of God. But yet if you're lost today and you don't know Jesus, this is the closest to heaven you'll ever get. Right? Hey, I'm thankful for the promise of John 3.16. You know why? Because this world is broken and messed up. If anything 2020 and up to the present has taught us is this. You've got to be living for something else beyond the horizon of this world. Because in a moment, your freedoms can be taken away. In a moment, your government can betray you. In a moment, your money, your bank can be shut down if the powers that be decide to do that. In a moment, 
Everything can be turned upside down. The economy can tank. The store shelves can be empty. The inflation can go sky high. In a moment, everything that we've built our lives upon is like quicksand. It can fall apart. But Jesus says, I've got a promise for you, child of God. Things may get dark down here. Things may get uh, evil down here. But you hold on to this promise. Uh, there's a brighter day. There's a glory land beyond the, the horizon of this world. There's an unclouded day. There's a heaven. There's an eternal life. There's a resurrection body to live for. There's an accolade that I want to hear one day. Well done good and faithful servant there's a trumpet that's yet to be blasted there's a cry yet to be given come up hither I want to meet him in the air I want to trade this body for a new one I want to see him high and lifted up I want to be there when we toss crowns at his feet I've got hope today yes the world is messed up no they don't have any answers in the halls of politics no, the academicians don't have the answers, but I do right here in John 3.16. God says, He has so loved the world that He gave His Son. What an amazing story. It begins with God who has no beginning and no ending, and it concludes with a life that has no ending. But there's bad news right beside the good news, isn't there? That word perish in the verse... It doesn't mean to be annihilated, like to cease to exist. There's some people that think that when you die, you're just snuffed out of existence like a cockroach. But what this refers to is the second death, the eternal condemnation that awaits those who reject God's love. You know, one of the worst pains in the world is unrequited love. When you hope that somebody would love you back. You see, to love is to make yourself open to rejection, isn't it? God doesn't force anybody to love Him. In fact, forced love is a contradiction. But God gives each man and each woman the choice to receive His love, to reject it. Imagine how God feels when His love, paid for and demonstrated by the death of His Son, is rejected by somebody who says... I'll go my own way. You think God knows something about unrequited love? This is one reason why hell must exist. Because God will not force himself on anyone. And therefore he has to create, have an alternative for people who do not wish to be in the presence of a loving God. But God's love is amazing on every dimension. One thing it cannot be is coercive. He makes the first move toward us. But we have to also make a move toward Him in faith. Apostle Paul was transformed by the amazing love of God on the road of Damascus. And in Ephesians 3.17, he said, That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's been said that God's love is wide enough to encompass all of mankind, long enough to last all eternity, deep enough to reach down to the lowest center, and high enough to exalt Him to the highest heaven. As we close today, I want to tell you this story. One of the church's beloved hymns is titled, Room at the Cross. 
I don't know if you know the story behind this hymn, but it's so interesting. The hymn's composer was a traveling evangelist, this fellow right here named Ira Stanfield. 1946, he was preaching at a revival in Kansas City, Missouri. During the evening service, Stanfield was going to play several hymns that people had been requesting. And earlier that day, somebody, several of these had been written on slips of paper, and then he put them in his pocket. He didn't get to all of them in that service, but that night, his hotel room, emptied out his pockets, and he noticed that written on one of the scraps of paper was this phrase. Is there room at the cross? Question mark. The preacher thought to himself, I don't think that hymn has been written yet. And yet, like a flash of brilliance, the Holy Spirit moved upon him to sit down and take pen to a piece of napkin, and he began to scribble out these words. Sometime after he put the words and the music together, he was at another revival meeting, and he felt like it was the time to play this new song. He said it was a steamy summer evening, and the country church had all the windows and doors open. As room at the cross was being sung, a young man was walking by the church. The man was depressed, and he had decided he was going to go into his life and throw himself over the bridge into a river nearby. When the man walked by the church, he stopped, and he listened to the singing through those open windows and doors. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. And this man, he stood out there kind of like a crossroads in his life. He heard the sweet singing coming from that church. But then he had all the problems ahead of him. He was going to go in his life. And he said he did an about face and he just was grown inside that church. The altar was full. There was people coming to the altar. There was tears being shed. And this young man walked down. And he grabbed the hand of Iris Stanfield and he said, I heard you singing from the outside and I just want to know, is there still room for one more? And Iris Stanfield said after that moment he knew that God had given him a song. Friend, I want you to know today there's still room at an old rugged cross. As we stand and as our musicians are coming, Hey, I don't know what the great need of your life is right now, but your greatest need is Jesus Christ. I don't know your heart. I don't know your walk with the Lord. I don't know where you are, but maybe God has said something in this time. Maybe God has spoke to you through this precious verse and showed you your need for Jesus Christ. Our altar is going to be open. We're going to be singing the words of that song, Room at the Cross. And if anybody needs to come forward and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Hey, we'd like to give you the opportunity to do that. But our altar is also going to be open for anybody who needs to pray. Anybody who's burdened for somebody that's lost. Anybody who's got a need in your life and you just need somebody to support you and encourage you. I've got friends down here who'll be willing to pray with you and pray for you. Let's listen to what God is saying to our hearts today. As Preston leads us, let's sing.